You're listening to the voices behind Women's Cricket Chat. That's Hannah, Georgie, Cassie, Mahika and Alex. Coming up on today's podcast... Welcome everyone to this episode of Women's Cricket Chat and you're joined by myself, Georgie and Hannah and today we are so excited to bring World Cup winning superstar left-handed batter Chris Watmo live on the podcast today chatting to us all things women's cricket, development of cricket and just generally being a star and we're already buzzing as you can tell. So welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you very much indeed. It's nice to meet you and nice to be on this. Well, it's really nice to meet you. As you can tell, we're just a little bit excited. We'll calm it down and we'll get talking cricket. So I don't even know where to start. Hannah, where should we start today? I was going to say, do we dive straight into the World Cup or should we just go a little bit gentle to begin with and discuss how did you get involved with cricket? How did I get involved in cricket? Well, I used to live in Preston, Lancashire, uh, and we had a field at the back of the houses and there were... I think it was about 22 of us who used to turn out regularly to play football in the winter and cricket in the summer. And of course, I was the only girl, but I was accepted in the group. And we used to do, as I say, cricket, football, round the road. We had a running track that the dads measured out. And it was about, in those days, 440 yards. So if we went round it four times, we'd run a mile. And we used to do athletics meetings and all sport, really. And our parents knew where we were. We'd come in for lunch and then we'd be back out and playing again. So that's how I got involved in cricket. And then my father was a journalist, wanted to work in Fleet Street, so got a job at Reuters and we moved to Orpington in Kent. And I didn't play any cricket at all until I was 16. And the PE teacher at school said, you played cricket, Chris, um, the teacher at the local grammar school, Val hesmond Hulsh, she, you know, she'll do some coaching for you. So a group of us used to go down to see Val and have coaching. And Val then introduced me to a club, Kent Nomads, and I played for them for several years and uh, got into junior Kent team got into the Young England team to go to Holland and Val was a manager of that team and then she became the manager of the England team to go out to Australia and New Zealand in 68-69 and I was fortunate enough to be selected as the babe of the trip and um, spent four and a half wonderful months with Rachel and Edna and Diz and all the famous cricketers Enid um, touring Australia and New Zealand. So that was my entry into cricket. I love that it goes from playing cricket in the street, dad measured it out to just casually travelling off to Australia and New Zealand. It's quite a jump. So you, yeah, so you moved up to Kent and got involved there. And were there many opportunities for girls to get involved in cricket? Well, luckily, because of Val, she ran the Kent junior team. And my PE teacher was, you know, kind enough to put me in touch with her. So... Uh, as I say, I then joined Kent Nomads Club and in the in the county we had Kent Nomads, we had Invicta where Heather Judney and Jill Cruz played, who also toured Australia. And there was Great Chart down in Ashford and those were really the three main clubs in Kent. But also over the border in Surrey, there was Wallington, Redoubtables and then in Middlesex, there were the clubs there. So although 
it sounds as if they were quite a way apart. They, you know, we we had enough club cricket to to play, so that was good. And of course, I played. I didn't say, but I did go to college for three years. And Mary Duggan, great Mary Duggan, was the vice principal at Dartford. And of course, I did cricket there for three years before being selected for England. So. Um, and Rachel, Enid, Mary Evans, or Pill as we knew her, Heather, Jill, all went to all went to Dartford. So it was a good good place to play cricket. And you've mentioned there are quite a few iconic women from the game, but did you have many kind of female role models growing up? Did you know much about the women's game when you were first playing, or was it something that you had to discover when you got to that age and then got into the setup? Well, all I knew was the lads played sport and I was allowed to join them. You know, I, I was just one of the lads. And uh, when I when we moved down south, I went to school, I played hockey. So that was obviously, you know, female hockey. I At school, we played rounders, did tennis, netball. Didn't know anything about cricket then until the sixth form and, and I met uh, Val. So... Um, I did go once with my mother to see New Zealand play England in 1966. I knew women's cricket was there, but didn't really know until, as I say, my PE teacher put me in touch with Val as to how to get into it. And, you know, once in, that was it. (laughs) A lifetime of cricket. That is no bad thing in our books. So obviously it went... It really ramped up and you found yourself on the way to Australia, New Zealand. And I'm guessing... A trip to get to Australia and New Zealand then wasn't quite like it is now when we just head off to Heathrow, we jump on a plane, we're there within 24 hours and we all complain that our legs are a bit stiff. What was it like at that age, still quite young, setting off on such... Uh, it was a pretty hefty trek to get to Australia and New Zealand to go and play cricket. Well, first of all, the bank of mum and dad had to help out because we My were an amateur association. It cost £500 and when you've just come out of college... Yeah, you know, we we didn't have debts in those days. We had grants instead. But you still, you know, I was in my first teaching job. In fact, I had to go for a teaching interview saying, if you offer me this job and if I'm selected for England, please may I have four and a half months leave of absence. But um, the school who offered me the job was Wallington High School. And Amy Bull, who had uh, was a president of the Women's Cricket Association, she had been the headmistress there. So cricket was well established in the school when I went there. So I was very, very lucky to be able to get a job and then get four and a half months leave of absence. And basically, we, well, we paid for ourselves. Once we got on the plane and we were the first team to go by plane, it was called the kangaroo flight. And you can imagine we went from London Heathrow to Amsterdam to Athens and we hopped out and it took forever to get there. So, yes, we we had to pay for ourselves. We were sponsored, though, by various firms. Um, People like Marks and Spencers gave us two dresses, a skirt, a couple of blouses. We had to pay for our blazers. Lotus gave us shoes. Um, Burley gave us a bra or a couple of bras each. So we did have some sponsorship in the clothing line. Um, As far as equipment was concerned, yes, some of the firms were very good. I always used Grey Nichols Bats and they were very generous with their donations. Um, Stuart Surridge also gave equipment to people who used it gun and more I think Enid used gun and more so we were very very lucky in that respect but as I said it did cost us 500 pounds to get out there but once we stepped foot in Australia we were paid for by the Australians so we were put up in 
local hospitality until we played a test match and then we moved into a hotel and then we went back into local hospitality which was actually the best way to see the country because when you're staying in billets what do they want to do they want to show you the best of the country don't they so um you know we got to see all the states that we stayed in so it was just absolutely great and were there any people that you met and stayed with that you stayed in touch with Funnily enough, I was out in Australia for the T20 World Cup and I stayed with Dawn Newman in Perth or south of Perth now she lives and she played against us in 68-69. That was her career in, in test cricket in Australia. I stayed with Anne Mitchell, who was a manager for Australia over many years in Melbourne. And in Sydney, I stayed with a liaison officer we met in 85. So, yes. I mean, and I still meet up with Rayleigh Thompson, who we played against, and Anne Gordon, who we played against in the first World Cup in 73. So, yes, I'm still in touch with quite a few of the Australians. And Debbie Hockley, she was doing some uh, broadcasting for the New Zealand television. So I met up with her again, having played against her. So, yes, it's, it's just you just see each other. You haven't seen each other for years and you just carry on where you left off. It's it's really good. And they'll obviously know if they come over to England, they've got a base which is not that far from London. Then sticking to that theme about Australia, what was it like to make your test debut in Australia? What are the memories that you've got of stepping out on that pitch? Oh, uh, nerves, <laughs> obviously. You know, but then just being with people like Val, who was our manager, and very, very good manager, and Rachel and Edna, they just put you at ease, you know, and, and they were very good. And Enid and I shared a room at one point and we were talking about if we're selected, it will be our maiden test and, you know, how we're we going to go about it. And then, of course, obviously, she went on to score thousands of runs and take hundreds of wickets, which is just brilliant. And it was, yeah, it was, we supported each other. It was a very, very friendly tour. And thanks to Val, who who said, right, whatever we do when we're apart, it's up to you and your hosts. When we're together, we appear united. And she also did say very early on, is there anybody you would particularly like to share with or is there anybody perhaps you don't know so well? And, and she would then manage it. So, you know, somebody like Sheila Plant, I didn't know. So we'd start off together perhaps just for the odd night but then towards the end of the tour when you know them you know you might be put together for a few days so you know that's how she managed it and that's how we got to know each other and it was a very united tour and a very happy tour and I think the best I ever went on because of the length of it and the way we were able to see see the country. Yeah, like in, I, I would love at the moment, especially four and a half months in Australia, that would be absolutely mega. Well, but to be honest, it was two months in Australia and two months in, in New Zealand because we then went on to New Zealand. But yeah, same principle. That will do. <laughs> <laughs> Just um, to make you jealous. <laughs> Just while I'm stuck here, you know, but... Um, you mentioned Enid there as well, and we've had Enid on the pod before, and we know that she's a brilliant character, really funny. What was it like sharing a room with her? Have you got any funny stories that you can share? Oh, it was so long ago. Probably finding her washing all over the place. <laughs> um, just great fun. I mean, I, I will tell you a story about Enid, but it was in this country. We were playing in the World Cup, 
And we weren't put in hotels in 73. We had to travel to the place and back. And so mum and dad, bless them, they'd put up anybody who was playing in the South. So Enid was staying with mum and dad. Well, I was as well. And um, she just said to my mum, Mrs. Watmo, she said, "Um, where's the ironing board and where's your ironing? I've got to do something. So Enid did all of mum's ironing that day. And that's how she was like. She just couldn't sit still, always on the go. And bless her, mum never forgot it. She always said, oh, is Enid okay? Do you remember when she did my ironing? (laughs) Was she good at the ironing, though? Wasn't bad. Mum was was quite a perfectionist, so she she was good, yes. So that moves us nicely on to that World Cup, which obviously was the first Cricket World Cup, women's or men's. So we can never take away that you won the first ever Cricket World Cup. So that's pretty damn snazzy, if you ask me. So what was it like to be part of that? What was the selection process like? And then to do that on home soil and win the first ever one in front of home fans? Okay, it all... What happened was if a team came to us, we had to pay their accommodation and arrange all the grounds and pay for their food and everything when they were with us. Rachel was absolutely brilliant at getting sponsorship. And she spoke to Jack Haywood, Sir Jack Haywood, a Wolverhampton businessman, and he sponsored us to go out to the West Indies in 1971. And then one day they were talking and When Rachel had approached him for sponsorship, his reply was, do you know, Rachel, he said, I love cricket and I love women. I'm obviously going to sponsor you. That was his reply. So when they then sitting, I think they were having a meal and a drink and they were talking about what could they do next. And they came up with the World Cup idea. And so uh, Audrey Disbury, I think, then got involved and she found all the grounds It was decided to invite Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, um, England and Young England. So it was those teams. I don't think I've missed anybody out. Oh, and the West Indies as a as a unit. Not. No, it was Jamaica and Trinidad and Tobago. They were individuals. They weren't the West Indies then. Sadly, because of the South Africa affair and Oliveira, South Africa, West Indies wouldn't have come if they'd played. So they had an international team instead of South Africa. And so those were the teams. So Diz organised all the games. She organised all the grounds. Jack just paid for the teams to be in hotels the whole time. And as I say, we travelled from the ground to, to to home, back to the next ground, to the practice, played the match, travelled back home. So the selection, we had a selection committee. Um, There would be five selectors and they would go round to our county matches um, and have a look. And then we'd have a selection weekend. I'm not sure where it might have been held at Dulwich or something like that. And they then from that selected the squad and we were together as a squad. So we, we, you know, whenever we played, say, at Hove, we all met up, played, had a practice, then played the match the following day. And, and that's how it worked. And so we traveled all around. So it was, it was, again, nerve wracking to be the first. The opening ceremony was attended by Sir Roger Bannister. Um, and that was in Chiswick. The press were interested because we wore skirts and, you know, what length did we have on our skirts, et cetera, et cetera. We didn't wear trousers, you know, and they tried to get people if they, you know, oh, they just 
you know, the, the press were good on the whole, but if they could get a story of, about something, somebody wearing, showing their knickers under their skirts, they would try and do that or something like that. But uh, no, it was really good. And Jack Haywood was brilliant. And Princess Anne came to the last match, which happened to be the decider, England against Australia, and she presented the trophy. So it was just super, absolutely super. And you mentioned there about young England as well. How important were they as a team to allow that kind of development pathway going forwards into future years as well? Like, What opportunities did that provide women and girls in England? It, it, it provided a lot. We had a junior England team, we had a young England team and we had the England team. Junior England was uh, captained by Sue Goatman, who was actually a little bit older than me, but... Um, you know, they, they decided to put experience into captain them. I think Jackie Court was the vice captain and they were young and a lot of them went on to play for England in uh, future matches and they were good. They were very good. What was it like to have to play against them in the tournament? Well, we were nervous, obviously, but we did manage to, to beat them. Oh, I can't remember where we played them. But anyway, we, we, we did beat them and they... they you know, they put up a fair opposition, which we would expect anyway, but we knew them so well because we were sort of playing with them on, you know, for competitions, county matches or just trials to get into teams. So I'm just looking at it now and you played against them at Valentine's Park in Ilford. Oh, right. I'd forgotten that. Thank you. There you go. And Rachel, you'll be all surprised to hear, scored 114. I'm not surprised. Ah, yeah, so England beat young England by 49 runs and it was a revised target because of the rain. Rain, yeah. We also had rain in Exeter or Exmouth when we played New Zealand. That was a rain-affected match as well. And everyone says it's just England that it rains. It's not. <laughs> no. Yeah, and you also played young England for your debut your ODI debut, sorry, in 1973, when you won by 135 runs against them with Lynn Thomas, 134, she was run out, Enid Bake for 101, not out, and Rachel Hayhoe Flint, nine, not out. So you didn't actually have much to do that match. You did get a bowl, one over for one run and one wicket. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I haven't got the facts in front of me, but <laughs> and the memory doesn't always <laughs> last that long, yeah. But it's not a bad debut, is it? One over for one run and one wicket. That's not bad. <laughs> so you and all the girls were real trailblazers for the women's game. You won the World Cup. You went out to Australia. You were the first team to fly out there. What's it like to be thought of as role models? And do you feel that you, you know, I think you guys need more recognition than you're being given these days. And obviously there was less media coverage in those days. And you say they were trying to get photos of people's underwear and that kind of thing which is just so not okay in my books but that's a story for another day what was it like to be a role model like that and how can we celebrate you guys more we didn't think ourselves as role models you know we were very lucky to play in the first world cup and we thought this is it we're we're setting a trend it's a world cup and then when the men decided to have one I think it was in 75 you know we were pleased that we started it but we just didn't think of ourselves really like that. We just playing cricket for the love of it. And, and uh, you know, we were never paid for it. As I say, the only things we got were our equipment and, and occasional clothing. So, you know, it wasn't really until later years when I suppose television got involved and they talked about 
what we'd done that you began to realise, oh, yes, we were trailblazers. But as I say, at the time, we just got on with it and played and hopefully were successful. <laughs> yeah, because I saw Jane Powell on Twitter tweeted, I think it was last year, it might have even been the year before, hashtag Forgotten Era. And that really hit me. And just building on what Georgie said there, like there's so much history that gets forgotten about in the women's game because I guess, like you mentioned with the TV side of things, when Sky in their partnership and you see it more regularly on there, it is more kind of like the Charlotte Edwards era and they don't really go beyond that. So how does that make you feel as a former player? I'm so pleased that television has got involved now and it's showing women's sport, whether it be football, rugby, cricket, in a proper light. And we're getting, you know, we're getting equal opportunities now. Okay, the pay isn't equal, but I don't, you know, that's another topic altogether. But it's really good that young girls can now see that sport is for everybody. I mean, when we had the colleges of physical education, the girls always had hockey and netball and tennis and rounders and athletics. And a few were lucky enough to have cricket. So... Sport has always been there, but now with the media presence and with professionalism, it has obviously picked up a lot. I don't feel bitter towards the girls at all because, you know, good luck to them. They, they've done well. Our World Cup is not counted in any official figures because we played 60 overs. And the men, I think you will find if you look it up in their first World Cup, they paid played 60 overs but because they're so much slower than we were at bowling their overs it got reduced to 50 and the girls then followed which is fair enough because you know if you did get a slow bowler it could be uh you know a long game but um no and it's a shame that that first world cup isn't counted in official figures and i suppose the next highlight was has happened just recently it happened in 2017 in the world cup when we never got caps for touring, although, you know, you've got you played so many times, so you've got so many caps, but we never actually got presented with a cap. And then uh, it started, I think, in Australia and the Australians recognised their players and presented caps to them. And then at the first match, which was England versus India, we were all invited up and we were presented with our one day cup caps or we were presented with our caps. And then... Andrew Strauss had a supper at Lord's for all current England players, past England players, men and women, and disabled men and women. And we were presented with our caps with the tassels. Um, And that was just a wonderful experience to be at Lord's with people like Bob Willis and, and, you know, Andrew Strauss and all those people. It was just absolutely lovely. So we did have a you know, we we have been recognised, albeit quite a few years after we'd even stopped playing. And you just mentioned that party there. I I believe from talking to other players that you were kind of mixed up. It wasn't kind of like you were sat on your era tables. It was a, a nice little mingle. So you could have been sat next to Sophie Eccleston and things like that. So who was he sat next to? And did you have any fun stories from that party? Jenny Gunn uh, was on our table. Um we had two of the the current England players on, and it was lovely. Anna Shrubsall, that's it. Um, but Jenny Jenny was great, actually, and Jenny and I did our... I got a, a World Cup. We were given a small World Cup medal, and, oh, I've got the story wrong. It wasn't the caps we were presented with in, in, against India. It was our World Cup medals. That's what they presented us with, the big World Cup medals, because uh, 
and they presented the the next team that won. So yeah, it wasn't Caps. Caps came later, but uh, they've come, and we've been recognised, and people like yourselves. And have you read Fair Play by Rachel? Hey ho, I have. I got yeah. it for Christmas. Yeah. I mean, she and Netta did the did the history of the game, and it's it's an interesting read. And Joan Hawes did one as well, women's cricket. She did she did a, a book on women's cricket. So you know, there the, there has been information out there, but as I say, you know, it's when they talk about it on television, it's as if we didn't exist. They it's only from the Charlotte Edwards era that seems to have existed, you know, when they, they're talking about things. So you don't often hear of Mary Duggan or, you know, Myrtle McLagan or Betty Snowball, who were great cricketers in their own right. And so you've obviously had this amazing career alongside all those girls, and you definitely sound like you've had some great times. Are you all still mates? Yes, I I sent a, a birthday card to Sheila Plant the other day, She uh, her birthday. We meet up sometimes through golf. Jackie Court uh, comes to the golf. Jill Smith comes to the golf. So we meet up there, Susie Redfern and uh, Claire Jenkins. June Stevenson, June Morehouse that was, I'm still in touch with her. A lot of us were able to get to Rachel's funeral, which was obviously quite sad. Enid I haven't seen for ages, but, you know, Christmas cards. Shirley Hodges, who was in that Australian team, she's a bird watcher. I'm a bird watcher, so we often go bird watching together. So yeah, to keep up with quite a few of them. You might be a bird watcher, but you still are third in the ODI record for most matches without a duck. <laughs> and I'll tell you another record I hold, and I, <laughs> I think I still hold it: the slowest naught in Test cricket. You know what? We'll take it. It's a record. <laughs> Yeah, Adelaide in 85 got naught in the first innings and I think it took over an hour and then I think I scored 70-odd in the second innings. But then you, got, you were just getting warm, you know, playing yourself in for the second innings. Yeah, but it's, a, you know, if people, if you ask people how I batted, it would be fairly quickly and hard-hitting. So for me, if you said who uh, who holds the record for the slowest duck, I don't think my name would come up in many people's. <laughs> so you'd be a twenty twenty player these days, or a hundred player. I think I'd. I think I'd like. Yeah, I enjoyed the one day stuff. I think I'd like twenty twenty actually. Yeah, I think I would. So you mentioned there the very sad loss of the legend that is Rachel Hayho Flint, who I did have the pleasure of meeting once when I was much younger and I will never forget it. But will you be walking through the new Rachel Hayhoe Flint gate at Lords this summer? I hope so. I hope so. I'm I'm a little bit wary, uh, you know, with this COVID because I'm I'm vulnerable um, as, as far as my health is concerned. But if it's a nice fine day and I can get up there, yes, I will go. Hopefully we'll be there too as well, won't we, Georgie? Right. And I guess as well, that brings quite a nice route back to the first ever game at Lords. So 1976. Why did it take so long for a start? But that's another story in itself. Yeah, yeah but that's Rachel again. She got that, you know, um, and with Jack Hayward's help and persuading the members that it wouldn't be a bad thing. The ladies had played at the nursery ground 
And we had, uh, Jack Hayward was responsible, I think, for the indoor school at Lords. And so we played there. And whenever we went on tour, Brian Johnson would obviously pop down. He lived quite close to Lords. He'd pop down and wish us luck. So that was lovely, you know, to meet somebody like him. But to, oh, what was it like? For years afterwards, every time I went to Lords, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. We couldn't believe because everything we did, and there was a little bit of dress room, dressing room humour as to what we did, but whatever we did was history. Drop a catch, take a catch. You know, uh, take the first wicket, hit the first six. Not that anybody hit a six at Lords, but, you know, it was all history. And it was incredible. We had about 2,000 people there which was a good crowd for us. Pip Vivian and her friend Pam had got a banner saying Our Ladies of Lords, which was lovely. Yes, it was a it was a superb day and everybody thoroughly enjoyed it. Great honour. Great honour. And in that match, you scored a half century as well. So not a bad day's work at all, but it did take 11 years after that match before playing there again. So what was it like to walk through? Did you get to walk through the long room? Did you have to get permission? There was, I know there's a lot. Uh, of- no, when we, we, Rachel said we haven't, we, long room is not for us. Ladies are not allowed in the long room. So we took the field first and we walked around the outside and came down the steps at Lords. Uh, one or two members are a little bit embarrassed about that. And when we went into lunch, we again, went round the outside. But after that, they said, no, you must walk through the long room. So we did manage to walk through the long room, which was a great honour. Yeah. And Rachel and I were together at the end. So we, you know, I hit the winning run, but we were there. So it's just great. And so you say dressing room antics. Who was the troublemaker? I wouldn't call her a troublemaker, but fun Jackie Court, you could put it probably at the top of the list for fun. What did she Um, get up to? Oh, all sorts of things, you know. But we didn't do too much to each other, but it was little things. In the tension of a match, somebody like June would just go and start to clean the sinks out and things like that. She couldn't watch the match, so she'd go in the background and start to clean the sinks and the shower areas and things like that. Various people had various things that they did. I used to like to sit and watch the game, whatever the situation, but wouldn't move from the chair I was in, you know, unless absolutely desperate need to go to the loo or something, you know. So people had their little thing. Diz, when we were in Australia and New Zealand, had... um a New Zealand thing that she always put Papua Nui, we called him, and he was always on his head, you know, <laughs> and th- just silly little things like that. People would put the their pads on always the same way, always put the left pad on first or the right pad on first, you know, and, and little things like that. So, but as I say, we, we'd have fun, but uh, not on a match, not so much on the match days. It was more, you know, when we were together in hotels and things like that, that we could have fun. And we've spoken about obviously winning that 1973 World Cup, but then the following in 1978, she had to settle for runners up and the same in 1982. So I was just wondering if we could talk about those experiences as well, because I think a lot of people do focus on those high moments. But I guess being a runner up is still a high. But what was it like? Because there's not so much news about it. Heartbreaking, because it was Australia both times. India... Well, it never really, it never, it nearly didn't happen in India because their organisation was actually not up to the standard that we were used to. But in the end, they got it together and we we played um, in Hyderabad and Secunderabad. To come off the field, field and have to pick yourselves up after losing, it was not, not a good feeling. But Australia were on the up. 
they put in a, a, a system of coaching and what have you, and they were really doing very well. And New Zealand, again, we didn't quite get it together, but you know, that's the way it goes. Some, some you win, some you lose, and you've just got to carry on. You still go out and do your best, whatever. And so you say Australia on the up. Annoyingly for us English, Australia seemed to still be up. And that was something I think them implementing contracts and professionalizing the game pretty early was something that has really contributed to their successes over the last few years. What was it like for you to be able to see that brought in in England and the women in England being given central contracts and domestic contracts? And do you think that's going to boost our game as we look to the future? Well, I think they've now increased the number of central contracts, haven't they? Is it to 29 or something? Which is, you know, if we can't get a good team out of that, then something is desperately wrong. You know, we need to to get the juniors coming through, get them into good coaching situations and then move on. And then there'll be competition for, for places because the more competition you have for your place, the better you're going to play, in my opinion. And your career spanned over 16 years. So what tips and advice have you got for players today to be able to have such a prominent international career? I don't know whether I could have coped with that number of years in a, as a professional because when we went to Australia and New Zealand in 68, 69, we played a cricket season before we went. We went out there, we came back in April, we went back into another cricket season. And I think every single one of us said, God, I'm looking forward to the hockey season. I think you can get stale. And I think we've got to be very careful. I, um, I, I'm not necessarily agreeing with the rotational system that the men have introduced, but we've got to be very careful how we handle these players because to play day in, day out, you know, they'll get tired. You've got to be mentally fit. You've got to be physically fit, which they are. But it must be very, very difficult. At least we had a, you know, I'd go back to school to do my teaching. And there was, you know, it was a change, a complete change from the cricket. So it, there is going to be competition to get in, which is good. And But as I say, I hope the management can can handle the situation that the players are going to be in because they're going to be playing you know they're going to we're going to have a series over here aren't we next year or this year they're playing in New Zealand at the moment they've played in Australia in a test series when do they get a break and you need a break and you mentioned the test there obviously we had one test match in the Ashes this winter which was amazing yes it came out with the draw and it was England's to win but what is it like for you to see women's test matches get that coverage and how are we going to get more of them? Well, we used to play only test matches. When we were out in Australia, we didn't play any one day as we just played test matches and, and against the States, we played a two or a three day game. So, you know, it, it's changed completely. It wasn't until the World Cup that the one day has started to come in. So we've got to find a balance. I think it is the West Indies or South Africa want to play test matches, which is good. But it's a different, totally different mindset to playing um, a one-day game. Uh, you've got to be prepared to go out and bat. You've got to be prepared to work your bowlers out so they're not, you know, they can bowl 17, 18, 19, 20 overs a day, maybe more. But you've got to keep them fit to be able to do so. So it, it's playing four or five days is really hard work. And, and it's a totally different situation to the one-dayers that they play. 
And you mentioned as well about the differences between the amateur days and professional days. And what was that kind of team structure like when it came to the support staff? Because obviously it was quite voluntary, wasn't it? And I know on the phone when we were chatting, you mentioned you had the first ever physio. Yeah. Well, when we went to Australia and New Zealand, Val was the manager, Rachel was the captain. They would, there were 17 of us, so there would be 11 on the field. There'd be a 12th man, a 13th man. There'd be a fourth, sorry, player. There'd be a 14th and then there'd be two shoppers. So if we wanted postcards or stamps, they'd go off and do that. If somebody was injured, obviously the next one down got changed to help. But it would be Val who would go off to the hospital with the player. Rachel would organise the, uh, and Val, Val was an advanced coach and Sanders was an advanced coach and Rachel were advanced coaches. They would help with the organisation of our nets and our practice. So it was all within that playing group. And um, <laughs> uh, so that, that's how it worked. We then were lucky enough to have uh, Pip Vivian as our, our physio, and she did a good job at, at, you know, warming us up and then dealing with any injuries. And, and that's, that's really all I knew, because, again, the manager was responsible for various things and the captain, they do the... We didn't have a coach as such. It, was, it wasn't until Ruth Prido became the national coach that... Um, you know, coaches were introduced. So Val, to me, Val was my coach. If I had anything I wanted putting right, I would go to Val Hesmond-Holsch and she would put me right within seconds. She was brilliant. <laughs> and do you think that sort of made you as players as well, that you all sort of mucked in in your own special way to give it that synergy that made the team so good? I think so, yes. I mean, when we were out in 85 in Australia, I was a senior player, but I do a lot of work with June Edney as, as the wicketkeeper. You know, I was, was an advanced coach, so, you know, I would help her or any, well, I'd help anybody if they wanted help, you know, with their batting or whatever. So you, you, you tried to you know, you didn't force yourself on anybody, but if somebody said, oh, Chris, can you just help me with this? Obviously you would, you know, and that, that's how we work because that makes the unity of a team. You've got to trust each other and you've got to, to work for each other. And now I'm just very conscious of time. Obviously you've spared so much to chat to us. So my final question from me is just, what has been your highlight throughout your career along those 16 years? What is that standout memory for you? Scoring 50 and hitting the winning run at Lords and playing at Lords got to be, and still being, still now being in touch with people in Australia and members of the team. You know, they're still there and they're still friends. But Lords, I think, and, and well, the World Cup and Lords, you know, absolutely superb. Those were the two highlights, really. But uh, I think walking out on that hallowed turf. And then there was this amazing highlight when you went on this amazing podcast with these two really cool people. And that was just great, obviously. I'm sorry, I should have mentioned that as well. <laughs> Don't worry. It was a given, you know. <laughs> um, and then looking ahead to this summer, we've got, I mean, not even just this summer. It's what, nine days we're recording this. What's the date today? The 23rd of February. So we're, we're leading up to a Women's World Cup. So will you be adjusting your sleep schedule and then looking ahead to a massive summer of women's cricket again? I shall, I shall be watching with interest at what they do out in New Zealand. I had talked to friends in this country and the Australians. We had planned to sort of go out there, but when we looked into where the matches were, there's going to be an awful lot of travelling north and south islands. I don't know how practical it would have been to be a spectator out there. And of course, with New Zealand shutting their borders for so long, we weren't able to do it. But quite a few of us were thinking of going out there. 
the friends that from this country that were going out there, they haven't gone that I know. So it, it you know, it's sad that there won't be a contingent of England players because you usually get one or two from each country and you meet up and you talk about it. The Aussies, I'm not sure whether they're going out or not. I don't think they are because they've only just opened up. So sadly, it's going to be without the ex-players and, and uh, managers out there. But um, I'm sure England will, will do well. And then we'll just have to we'll just have to rearrange all these meetings for everyone over in England this summer. We'll just have to have a big get together here instead with the full on English teas, yeah. all the players, past, present, future podcasters, writers. Just get everyone involved. Maybe we'll all just head off for a big day at the test match. Yes, maybe that would be good. Yeah, that would be nice. Well, I think we've probably kept you long enough and. I just, I'm just so thankful for you for coming on and joining us today, taking time out of your your lunchtime, your busy schedule um, to talk to myself and Hannah. It's been, it's been honestly so great to listen to your story. It sounds like you had an absolute ball throughout that career, and I love watching cricket enough. So to be able to see, hear you guys, and know how much you enjoy playing it makes it even more special for those of us that are watching, writing and talking about it. So thank you so much for just blazing those trails and being an absolute legend. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you and maybe we will we'll meet up in the summer somewhere. That's my plan, whether it's Lords, whether it's anywhere around the country, there can be tea, champagne, whatever you fancy. Maybe we'll take you on at some street cricket. Okay. <laughs> Righty-ho. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Chris. Um, it's just been amazing. Thank you very much indeed. Okay. Yeah, thank you so much. Speak to you very soon. Speak to you soon, yeah. Bye. 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 Massive thank you to Chris for coming on and being a guest on the podcast. It was really interesting to hear about the formation of the World Cup and how Sir Jack Hayward was involved and all, how that all went about. It's really interesting to hear her perspective on how the games move forward and what we need to do to ensure we're getting the best out of our players, including having good rest and recuperation periods. And to all our listeners, if you want to keep up to date with everything that we're doing, you can follow us on Twitter at WCricketChat, on Instagram at Women's Cricket Chat. And if you want to give us a like on Facebook, we are Women's Cricket Chat. If you'd like to give our personal Twitters a follow, then it's at HannahT1194, at GeorgiaHeath27, at CassieCoombs98, at Mehika Varshney, and I'm at Alex Jane This has been Women's Cricket Chat. Tune in next time.